Welcome to Business Talk Sister Talk. I'm Becca. And I'm Ruthie. And today we are continuing our series, a three-part series on authorship. Today's episode title is How to Write a Book People Will Read. And with us today, we have Cedar Sanderson. Thanks so (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to do this with you. Well, yeah. we are definitely um, looking forward to it, especially because uh, of all of our conversation we've had with you already. So um, can you tell us first, what do you do? So uh, I do a lot of things, but the thing that's relevant to this is I write books. Um, I've written a lot of books. I have nine novels out now and a couple of dozen short stories, uh, two children's books and a couple of coloring books. Wow, cool. Okay, so tell us, why did you start doing it? So I started writing, um, gosh, I started writing professionally a decade ago. Um, But I've been I had been writing before that, because I tend to find it easier to express myself in the written word than I do speaking. Mm. Um, And about two decades ago, I also got involved in public performance. So now I'm really comfortable with both speaking and writing, which Mm. is interesting. (laughs) But uh, I started writing fiction, because it's an interesting way to explore. I tend to be very character based, I like to explore people and human interactions. Hmm, Okay, so how do you do this then? So I'm a pantser, which means that I fly by the seat of my pants. Um, <laughs> so a lot of people um, need to outline and set up a plot so they can kind of keep their, their book on the rails. And I've always liked what Agatha Christie said about what people like me do, and evidently she did too. She said it's like driving down a road in heavy fog and you never know when the next turn is coming. Hmm. And I've had a few stories go off the rails and plunge down into a deep ravine and kind of come to a crashing halt. But the fun part of it for me, and this is what my brain needs, is it needs that little mystery of what's going to happen next. Because if I try to outline a story, my brain's like, okay, well, you've told the story, we're done now. And I'm like, but, but 100,000 words, and my brain's like, nope, we're done. <laughs> so, I'm a, so I'm a pantser, which means that I kind of have to figure it out as I'm going. I feel like I can relate to that to some degree, um, maybe a lot degree, but not so much in writing. I, I like because I always tell my mom that being a forgetful person is like living in constant surprise. Like you just throw yes. yourself little surprise parties every day. You're like, oh, I scheduled that. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so there you go. Um, our next question is, how do you gain inspiration to write a book? Well, let's see. That's happened a lot of different ways. I think my best-selling book, um, which is Pixie Noir, and that was born out of um, my really good friend at the time was he had challenged me to read some books that were kind of out of my comfort zone. So I read a bunch of Mickey Spillane and then some Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler. So those are all really famous noir, gritty detection kind of stories. And then I wanted to make him laugh and return. So I started writing this story that was a mashup of like fantasy tropes and noir detective fiction. And I succeeded making him laugh and a whole bunch of other people too, because that book really took off and sold far better than I ever thought it would. What is a noir? 
So noir is, I mean, it's the French word for black. And noir comes from, they're very dark. And it more comes from film noir, which literally were filmed and they were very dark. The lighting's dim. There's a lot of rain. And there's a lot of there's a lot of debate about what noir really is, but it's almost like the anti-hero, the guy that's been knocked down and kicked in the teeth, but he just keeps getting up and charging forward anyway into the face of evil, even though he has absolutely no hope of succeeding and winning because he can't stop. He just has to do the right thing. And that's what noir is for me, at least. But there's a lot of, it's gritty, it's bleak. Um, but for me, noir always has that kernel of heroism and hope. So you said that you made someone laugh with the noir that you wrote. And so how do you kind of test out what people will enjoy? You said you talked with that one person, but what were some other ways that you tested that? So I actually do a couple of different things now. I mean, that was very early in my reading career. Um, when I first started, I was part of a writing group, and I would send a chapter or a short story out by email. Um, I've never had an in-person writing group, but um, I'd send it out by email, and then I'd get critiques back or responses. And now what I do is I have a blog, and my blog is very often nonfiction essays and a lot of recipes because... I'm very comfortable cooking. It makes it's my happy place. But I also put up snippets and bits of fiction there. And then people in the comments tell me if they liked it or they didn't or what um, kind of they'll give me like thoughts on how they felt when they were reading it. And that helps. And the other thing I have um, for actual finished pieces is I have a group of what's called beta readers. And I send it out to them and they read and get back to me um, with specific input. And usually my question when I send out, out the manuscript in an email is, is this a story or a cabbage? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, and I have a couple of people I use as alpha readers as well. And I'm like super stuck. I'll be like, can you please come read this and tell me if I'm complete, if I've crashed down into that ravine and, and lost in the fog. So I have a bunch of different ways I can get um, feedback. And then, of course, once it's published, there's reviews. And they say you should never read your reviews, but I do anyway. <laughs> Does that help you or hurt you? Um, I Well, a <laughs> little bit of both. Because sometimes I'll get a review and I'll be like, I don't think they read the book I wrote, but okay. Um, but a lot of times I also get some really great reviews that are just like, I'm like, they really got it. Or um, it, it's a little humbling sometimes to get a review and, and have someone tell you that you really moved them or they thought this was amazing. And, and you're just like, gosh, I, I don't know if I deserve that. But <laughs> so how do you pinpoint a genre if you have the urge to write or, or do you have to write about every sort of topic in different sections or can you clump them into one? So genre is this really interesting thing. So I, I spent some time as a librarian and I was technically a children's librarian, but it was a very small library. So we all did a bunch of everything. 
And genre is one of those things that was kind of created by librarians and marketers so mm-hmm. that they would know where to put a book on the shelf. Mm-hmm. Becca loves librarians and marketing. So. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, so do I. <laughs> so genre is one of those things that I don't think about genre when I'm writing, usually very much. Um, I will actually occasionally have a book that I'm writing it and I'll be telling people when I talk about it, I'll be like, this doesn't fit in a genre and it's going to be a problem. Um, Actually, my good friend Tom Knighton came up with a genre definition after I expressed some frustration that urban fantasy is the typical like um, contemporary fantasy that's set in modern times. And obviously with the word urban in there, they're in cities. Well, I write contemporary fantasy, but there's no herb. Mm-hmm. So my friend Tom Knighton, after reading one of my books, Possum Creek Massacre, informed me that what I'm writing is banjo fantasy. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> so it was set in the Appalachians. There's magic. There's, there's um, police procedural because I have a criminal justice background. So Genre tends to be something I think about after I'm done, because then I have to go in when I'm getting ready to publish and I have to assign it a genre. So that leads into a lot of things. Cover design signals genre. So you have to have the right cover to tell readers what's inside the book. And when you're setting up your marketing, you need to know genre. So you're marketing to the right people um, that are looking for this book. Yeah. So how does cover art vary by genre? There, I mean, that gets to be a really broad topic because a romance cover is not the same thing as a Western cover. It's not the same thing as military fiction, science fiction, or military fiction for that matter. I do some cover design. When I first started publishing, I didn't have money to hire it done. And I did have some graphic design background. And yes, I do everything except I can't knit. But other than uh, it that, sounds I- like you do everything. Like <laughs> honestly, you just keep mentioning all these different things that you've done, and I'm like, oh my word! <laughs> so <laughs> sorry, you can't knit. <laughs> I can't knit. Um, I've never been able to teach myself how to cast on. But that's kind of the genesis of this: is that I was homeschooled. I'm an autodidact, and if I need to do something, I generally teach myself how to do it. So graphic design and cover art are not exactly the same thing. Cover art is a very specific subset of it. And I did take a um, Dean Wesley Smith workshop and I worked with a lot of people over the years talking about what fits where. So just to pick one, like let's say urban fantasy cover. If I'm designing an urban fantasy cover, there's some elements it needs to have on it. The typography needs to be right. And that's one of those dancing targets that changes so you have to kind of keep up with the genre expectations Um, but there needs to be a central figure probably human if you put in a central figure and an animal then it signals paranormal romance so you don't want that if you're doing straight urban fantasy because they're not the same thing and you want to have some kind of a magical element usually what I call a glowy thing (laughs) (laughs) so if it glows it's magic Um, bright green bright bright um, blue pink it depends Um, I've done some covers for Amy Gibbons and she is this sweet southern belle 
and she writes that kind of character. So I tend to go with pinks and oranges for her because they fit her characters and, and her. Um, so, but generally speaking, if I'm going to design a cover, the first thing I try to do is figure out from the author what the subgenre is. So I narrow it down past even genre to just like specific subgenre. And then I hop on Amazon and I see what the top 100 bestsellers in that um, subgenre are. Not the free books in that subgenre, but the bestsellers. And I kind of look at those and I look at what elements are being repeated. And then I can go and say, okay, we're going to need to do this bit and this bit and this bit and pull it all together into a cohesive whole. Uh, because a book cover is more about signaling genre and what's in the book. It is almost never an exact replica of a scene from the book. Huh. So would you say that the cover is probably one of the most important things when deciding if a book is going to sell or not? Or is there more to that? Um, I would say that the book cover is really important. Um, people say that they don't look at the book covers and they fib. And people do judge a book by its cover and it gets even more difficult when you're thinking in terms of most sales these days are done on Amazon and most readers encounter book covers in a thumbnail size. So it's this teeny tiny little thing. It's often on their phone while they're browsing. So you have to design for that and it has to really pop. Um, but it can't look too different from the other books in that genre <laughs> or the reader gets confused and they're like, is that really what I want? <laughs> So it's, it's a challenge. Hmm. Yeah. So how has writing children's books um, been different in, in other genres that you've written in? Oh, it's hugely different. I said for years, so I've been doing art. That was part of what I did as a performer. I, we were, I did family entertainment and I was a face painter and a balloon twister, did a little bit of comedy magic. Um, but mostly the face painting led me to... Um, wanting to do it on paper. So I started doing art and I've been doing art almost daily for six years now. So my art tends to be cute. I can't help it. It, it, it just comes out cute. <laughs> I've tried doing fierce. It doesn't work. <laughs> so I have the coloring books I did are, are the adventures of Inktail the dragon. And for years, people were telling me, you have to write a children's book with this little character. You, you have pictures of him doing these things. And I'm like, writing a children's book is so different from writing a novel. I can write 100,000 words and have a plot and character interactions. But a children's book is just a few hundred words. And they have to be the right words for the right reading level. And, and I kind of vapor locked. And I was trying to talk my mom into writing the story um, because she's a really good writer. And I was going to do the illustrations. <laughs> and then this last year, I came up with this idea that I had to do a children's book for my sister. Now, my sister is um, severely autistic and she is mentally about four. <laughs> so she has a joke about being a cute moose and she'll hold her hands up to her head like a being like antlers so I decided I was going to do a cute moose rhyming book for her for her Christmas present and that turned into my first children's book and it came out super cute and a lot of people really loved it um, so when I was approached by a friend with 
he's written a story and he wanted me to do the illustrations for it, I was like, yeah, I can do this. <laughs> and there's going to be a couple more coming out this year too. Oh, awesome. Okay. Wow. So, so far uh, my running list is <laughs> librarian, <laughs> criminal justice background, balloon twister and face painter <laughs> and <laughs> illustrator and author and sister <laughs> and daughter <laughs> the list goes on and on <laughs> uh okay so when you're thinking about promoting and writing for your audience to say yeah because we just talked about yep they definitely it's a fine line of are they going to read this versus not read it because of being right in the genre? So mm -hmm. in the actual story that you're writing, um, has your process changed as you've learned from new books to see, oh, this works a lot better for people um, at all or anything like that? So um, I don't really read books on writing. <laughs> um, that's never been how I've learned how to write. What I read books for is I read books that I enjoy and I've tried to then study them and be like, okay, I really enjoyed this. What was it that pulled me into it? And, and honestly, it's made it really difficult sometimes because I love reading. I've read since I was like four years old. Um, and I used to read enough that my mom would tell me I was reading too much when I was a teenager. Um, <laughs> and not getting chores done usually. Um, mm. But now as a writer, if I go in and I start reading a book that isn't quite what it should be, um, and that's kind of how my very first novel wound up happening, was my daughter got me to read a book that she really loved. And I was like, wow, I could do this. <laughs> so uh, when we were talking originally, you had said that you were you would send her chapters of your book while she was at summer camp like every day and I yes. thought that was the coolest thing ever I was like wow go mom <laughs> I love that it was the first time she'd been away from home for very long and she had had me read this book just a couple months before and so I started writing um what would later become the novel Vulcan's Kittens. Mm. And it was, I basically, I describe it as I threw the world myths into the blender and came up with, <laughs> and, and then I had to, because I, at the time, this was very, very early. I didn't want to write fantasy. I wanted to write science fiction. I've always, I always wanted to be a scientist. And so I was like, all right, I have to come up with a scientific basis for the world myths. And I did. Um, so technically that book is what the genre would be science fantasy, <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, she came back from summer camp and started school and came home with a sheet of paper one day and was like, mom, my, my teacher was telling me about NaNoWriMo. Can you do this with Falcon's kittens and make it into a full novel? <laughs> How did you come up with your, with your title for that? How do you pick your titles for books for Falcon kitten, Falcon's kittens and, and any other titles that you've written? Well, I knew if I used Hephaestus um, that most people wouldn't know what I was talking about. So I went with his other name of Vulcan, the <laughs> god of volcanoes and fire and blacksmithery. Ah. Um, so, and in the book, I actually nickname him as he's, he's Grandpa Hef. Um, so I, I shortened Hephaestus to Hef. Mm. But Vulcan's Kittens is, I knew it was going to be catchy. Um, what I hadn't thought through when I titled that book was that it would get wound up being 
people would wonder if it was um, Star Trek fan fiction, which it is totally not. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, <laughs> that kind of Vulcan with pointy ears. No. Um, but um, it has kittens and it has a litter of, of demigod kittens that the main character winds up having to take care of and protect. And that's where the, the kittens came from because my daughter was and is um, all about cats. So that was mm. for her. <laughs> that's so cool. I love that. Uh, well, we have so many other things that we could ask you and, and pick your brain about, but um, we are running out of time. <laughs> yeah, so, I know. Tell us where people can find you. So people can find me at my website and that's cedarwrites.com. Um, and you can find me on Amazon under Cedar Sanderson. I do have a pen name, um, Lelania Begley. And that is because I knew if I wrote a romance novel, my fans of science fiction and fantasy would go, ooh, cooties. So uh, I published the the romance. Um, actually, it's, it's a novella, so it's uh, less than 40,000 words. But that one's out under Lelania Begley. Awesome. Well, we are going to um, transition to the sister gawk portion. And I'm really excited about this because <laughs> Cedar's going to tell us a story. Um, so can take it away. Go ahead. <laughs> so in addition to being a, a daughter and a sister, I'm a mother. I have four beautiful, amazing kids. And I was at the stage of motherhood where I really should know that when um, you have a toddler. Silence is not golden. Silence is suspicious, <laughs> deeply suspicious. <laughs> so my youngest daughter, now I have three girls and then a little boy. So the baby was asleep and the two older girls were off at school. And my youngest daughter, who was a toddler at the time, was being very quiet. And I was sitting in my office at my desk and I had the door open which led into the kitchen and I heard this funny noise so I got up very quietly and I walked to my door and poked my head out so I could see into the kitchen and there she was sitting in front of the open refrigerator in a pool of broken eggs Ooh. <laughs> I don't know why she had decided that she was going to very carefully take out the egg carton lay it on the floor next to her and then break the eggs on the floor but she did she looked up and she saw me and she jumped to her feet. And you know, the Looney Tunes cartoon thing where their legs are going in a circle, but they're not actually going anywhere. <laughs> she did that. <laughs> and I laughed so hard I had to hold on to the door so I didn't fall down. And that was the day. And she was like, this is perfect because now I'm not getting yelled exactly. at. <laughs> make mom laugh. That was the day where my kids learned that if you can make a parent crack up so hard they can't move, you'll get away with what you were doing. <laughs> <laughs> so she sat back down and finished off the rest of them then? <laughs> no, we cleaned it up together. <laughs> but That's amazing. I love that. Was, oh, well, that's. That's great. Well, hey, guys, if you enjoyed this episode, uh, you should definitely check out the other two episodes that we put out about uh, authorship. So definitely look at that in the series. Um, Cedar, thanks so much for being with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And if you guys enjoyed this episode, too, you can uh, check out Cedar on her uh, contact information or you can go to our uh, Apple podcast and give us a review. We'll see you next week.